0: Lord, thank you for giving us another time to spend with you. Lord, it's just really awesome that we can be in your presence um, as a group of believers, fellowshipping together with you. I pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us what is true and what is right and what is
1: beneficial and pure and noble and praiseworthy. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, Revelation 14, and we're going to cover the first
0: 13 verses, and it's about the 144 Jewish witnesses, or evangelists, and the three messages from the three angels that go around preaching. And the chapter finishes with the judgment on the earth, but we'll get to that next week. So, I'm going to just do a little quiz to see what you remember from last week, okay?
1: So, what happens to those who worship the image of the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast? Yep, for eternity. Yep, they seal their fate in the lake of fire. List the
0: three ways that God warned the people of the earth, every single person, not to follow or worship the Antichrist nor take his mark. One of the
1: three methods that God used to warn people not to take the mark. Angels is one, yes. The
0: two witnesses is another. And the 144,000, very good.
1: Okay. What happens to the Antichrist at the midpoint of the tribulation? He gets shot or killed somehow, he's assassinated and he rises from the dead. Yeah, he's resurrected somehow. Okay. Now, why is this important? Basically, kept on repeating this the antichrist the image of the one whose wound
0: whose deadly wound was healed so it keeps on going over and over this resurrection event and the false prophet is going to use this miracle to switch people's devotion or attention to worship the antichrist
1: as the false messiah as god and to worship his image so very powerful deception Now, another thing we talked about, what one decision
0: will determine the fate of every person who ever lived? I'm not just talking about the tribulation now. What one decision will determine the eternal
1: destiny of every person who has ever lived? Choosing Jesus, yeah. Will I believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? That's it. Will
0: I... Yes or no? And I've got a verse to put up there for you to explain that. It's John 16 verses 8 and 9. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of its sin, singular, and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. And then it goes back to that first bit. The world's sin, singular, is that it refuses to believe in me. So the only sin that's going to keep you out of heaven is the sin of not believing in Jesus and accepting his gift of eternal life.
1: Now, when we evangelize, what should we start with? Their sin, yeah, yeah. And what's the best way of convicting people of their sin?
0: The Ten Commandments, yeah, that's right. And why start with the Ten Commandments? Because you've already said it. It shows people their sinfulness in the light of God's perfection. Now, why do people need to know their sinfulness? You know, why do they need to know how sinful
1: and wretched they are compared to God's perfect holiness? We do fall short. Why do people need to know they fall short of God's perfect standards? They've sinned. That's right, God doesn't allow anything about perfection in heaven. Well, would they ever recognize
0: the need of a saviour unless they knew they were sinners and they needed something to be saved from, right? So Jesus, he's our saviour, not from problems, not from all those things,
1: but mainly from sin. He's our saviour. He saves us from our sin. And a little anecdote
0: here, it's, like having medicine available to you that will heal you from a deadly disease, but you don't take it because you didn't know you were sick, and as a result you died. So similarly, preaching the gospel to an unbeliever without showing them their sinfulness is like giving a cancer patient Panadol to disguise their symptoms and telling them that they will be fine. If a doctor did that, they would be guilty of gross negligence and willful deceit at the bare minimum, and in a worse worst case, they'd be up for murder. They would most definitely lose their license to practice medicine. So how much worse is it for the Christian to not work with the Holy Spirit, remember the Holy Spirit is already convicting the world of sin, and work with the Holy Spirit using the Ten Commandments, and if we don't do that then we're not giving them a chance to repent of their sins and turn to God and to be saved from eternity, separated from God in the lake of fire. So, Revelation 14, overall title Images of God's Victory and the Beast's Defeat. That's what this is all about. Last week, the beast was looking strong, the beast was looking undefeatable. But <laughs> we're getting toward the end of the book now, and the end of the book says Jesus wins, yeah? So, Revelation 14 is yet another one of these amazing parenthetical chapters. It's just like chapter 13, which described the Antichrist and the false prophet. So, these parenthetical chapters explain the main characters, events, and organizations present during the tribulation. So, chapter 14 starts by focusing on the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who were sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we studied them in chapter 7. And it also describes a great miracle. And we touched on this last week, but Jesus said in Matthew twenty four fourteen, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world, and then the end will come. So the kingdom is a millennial kingdom, all the world is all the world, and the end is the second coming. So most people think that before the church can leave, you must preach the gospel to all the world. But we've already done that. We've got radio and TV. But this is actually in context, referring to the tribulation saints. The tribulation saints, the angels, the two witnesses, they will do this as well. So the three ways we talked about that the world will be evangelized, the first way is through the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. I reckon they're going to have full coverage in most of what they say. They're going to be calling down plagues, performing miracles, withholding rain from the nation of Israel, from that area, of the world for the entire three and a half years of the prophecy. They're going to destroy those who try to destroy them by fire that comes from their mouths. That's pretty exciting, eh? No one's going to want to insult them. And at the halfway point, God removes his protection. The Antichrist is allowed or given authority to kill them. But three and a half days later they... So the breath of God comes into them. They resurrect. And God says, come up here, and they go up to heaven. So, the Bible makes it clear that their death and resurrection and ascension to heaven will most definitely be on world TV. And you can read all about that in Revelation chapter 11. Now, the second evangelization tool is the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, except the tribe of Dan. And they're going to be sealed by the Holy Spirit before any harm comes to the world. And they will not be harmed during the tribulation. That's what I understand it to say as we get into it today. So I'm going to read those verses from Revelation 7 because in, Reve- in chapter 14, it builds on what we've read in chapter 7. So Revelation 7, 2-4, it says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. When we're talking about the mark of the beast, well, here's the, if you want to say it, the mark of God, the seal of God. right? And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then it goes on. 12,000 for this tribe, 12,000 for the next tribe. So it says that they're all chosen and sealed before harm comes to the world. So I would say that's before the actual tribulation begins. That's one way of looking at it. So in that short period of time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation, when the Antichrist confirms the covenant, that is most likely the time that these guys be raised up. Now how will it happen? I think it's going to be like, or similar to, the Apostle Paul's conversion. Remember? The light shone down from heaven. I'm not saying that it's going to happen to every one of those people, but it's going to be sudden. It's going to be a spirit thing. God's spirit is going to come upon people. He's going to anoint them with this gift of evangelism. And Within a few days, months, whatever that time period is, they will be fearless Apostle Paul's. All right? So, you see the, the effect that one Apostle Paul had. What about 144,000 Apostle Paul's? <laughs> so, I was thinking about this and this verse came to mind. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the second half. It says, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. For me, God is really, really merciful. He's awesome. He's so caring for his creation, especially for the people. The world does not deserve all this evangelism, this grace, and in fact it doesn't even want it. But what does God do? He reaches out anyway. And that's God's heart. That's what I want to communicate to you today, is God's heart to see people saved. Because if we have God's heart, we will want to see people saved too. God doesn't want anyone to perish, so we shouldn't want anyone to perish. And a couple of verses is to show that. Ezekiel 18.32 For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Then there's Jeremiah 7.25 Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily, rising up early and sending them. So it's been a consistent witness. God has not left people just to be deceived with no truth available. It's always a choice. So in summary, God has always gone to great lengths to reach out to people, to give them the opportunity to repent, and he will continue to do so even in the
1: tribulation, which is a time of judgment the principle here, God shows mercy even in times of judgment.
0: Now the third way that God reaches out to the world is through the three angels that fly around the world, warning people and preaching the everlasting gospel. And we'll read about that today. So Revelation 14 also answers two important questions that we get from Revelation 13. The beast, the Antichrist of Revelation 13, was terrifying and awesome. He can make war against the saints and overcome them. That's verse 7. So it's fair to ask, is the beast completely victorious over all God's people? Well, we're going to find out that the 144,000, the way I interpret it, they get through safely. They make it through the tribulation. I'm not saying that they're going to enjoy going through the tribulation but God brings them through. They were sealed, they were protected, they come through. So, does the Antichrist have power over them? No. The second question that you might ask is, what about this satanic dictator himself? And what about his followers? Well, the end of chapter 14, verses 14 to 20, talk about his judgment. So we'll cover that next week. But basically, he's going to get wiped out. He's given authority to continue only for a short time. And when the time's over, man, it's going to be a bloodbath.
1: So let's get into Revelation 14. Read verses 1 to 13. It says, Then I looked, and behold,
0: a lamb standing at Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, not (laughs) 143,999, One hundred and
1: forty-four thousand.
0: Yeah, everyone is present, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember that's the seal of God. Yeah, they belong to him. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpers playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the hundred and forty-four thousand. Who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who followed the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And then we go on to verse six the proclamations of the three angels. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Remember that means the unbelievers and giving them a chance to repent. To every nation, tribe, tongue and people. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then verse 9, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And then finishing with verse 12 and 13, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, "Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on." Yes, says the spirit, "that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them." So let's start in the first 3 verses. So we just read them again. So 14 verses 1 to 3. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Who's the lamb? Jesus, yeah. Jesus is back. Okay, this is the way I interpret it. Mount Zion, the physical city of Jerusalem. The location of Jerusalem. And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. Whose voice is that? God's voice, yes. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. This speaks
1: of personal relationship. just going off topic a little bit. We have a personal
0: relationship with God. And as we go through trials and tribulations, we will have a new song that no one else can sing. We will experience things from the word of God and we will know that they're true from experience. It'll be our song that we sing to God. No one else's, just ours. Your relationship with God is very personal and that's something that I think is important. So in verse 1, Mount Zion is Jerusalem. It's the ancient name for the hills that make up Jerusalem. And when Jesus comes back, he will come back to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem. It's basically the same thing as Mount Zion, I believe. Um, if it's one of those hills, and it will split, and then yeah, things will happen. We'll learn about that later. But that's where Jesus comes back. That's where he will set up his brand-new temple. He's going to make a temple. There will be sacrifices and stuff during the thousand-year rule and reign. And that's where his throne will be. So... The way I see it is that the throne here is not the throne in heaven but the throne on earth where Jesus rules and reigns from on earth for the thousand years. And with him 144,000, I mentioned before that we saw these guys in Revelation 7 and they were given the seal of protection. They're Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel. And since they stand on mountains line with the lamb with Jesus it shows that they emerge victorious from the great tribulation the beast cannot touch them they are triumphant worshiping standing firm with Jesus he hasn't lost even one and you think of shadrach meshach and abednego in the book of daniel it's like a picture of that god is able to preserve his people God can do that he's going to preserve the nation of israel
1: in the land of moab there having their father's name written on their foreheads well in a sense we all have a name on us don't we we are owned by someone whether it be god or satan the mark just proves that they belong to the Father, But how many marks are there? There's only two
0: two choices, all right. There's only two choices. You can have God's mark, God's seal, or Satan's mark, Satan's seal. Yeah, there's no middle ground. You either belong to God or you belong to Satan. You're a child of God or a son of the devil. And it says, the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And if you go back to Revelation 115, chapter 4, verse 5, it's the voice of God. So it sounds like God the Father is speaking from heaven, and it's heard, his voice is heard on earth. Just like when Jesus was baptized. The Father spoke, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And what's he saying to these 144,000 who have come through the tribulation, his faithful witnesses who have been preaching the gospel for those seven years? Well, I don't know because it doesn't say, but here's my guess. I reckon it's going to say something like this. Well done,
1: good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we all want to hear? And
0: I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 8, we, the church, the elders, 24 elders representing the 24 groups of priests, orders of priests, the authority, the government, the church, we have harps as well. So not only will we be singing, but we will also be playing musical instruments. So, we are all going to have a voice that can sing, and we are all going to have the ability to play music. So, Heaven is going to be a place of beautiful music, as will, of course, the earth during the millennial reign when Jesus is ruling and reigning on it. It's going to be awesome. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. As I said before, this is probably the throne of Jesus in Jerusalem when Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And where does our praise take us? It takes us to the throne, right? It changes our perspective. It focuses us on the Lord and we come before his throne. And a new song in verse 3. Why a new song? And why I could only the 144,000 sing it? Because their ministry was unique. They had unique experiences and so they had a unique or special relationship with God. A special role to play in God's plan of salvation. But Don't forget that us as the church, we will have our special song that no one else can sing. The people, the 144,000, they can't sing our song and we can't sing their song because we have individual relationships with God. So I've just put that up. It's Revelation 5, 9 to 10. This is our song, the church's song that we'll be singing in heaven before the throne. It says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So what are we seeing about? I mentioned it before. Our salvation. It's going to be the front and center of everything and it should be now too. It's the best thing that can ever happen to us. And it's not just a one-off thing. It's something that continues. And we continue to change. We continue to grow. And even when we get to heaven, we will not stop growing in our understanding of God. Because God's love is infinite, we will need an infinite amount of time to understand His love. Does that make sense? It's not like, oh, I've reached my potential. I know everything now. I'm bored. No,
1: we're always going to be falling more and more in love. Now, it says in the next
0: bit, Revelation 14, 4 5, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God.
1: So, virgins can be taken as a symbol of purity. Like in 2 Corinthians 11:12.
0: But most likely, they were literally virgins. They weren't married. And it makes sense because in those troubled days, in those troubled times, it'd be really difficult to have a family. So for that short period of time, for that, that seven years, they were celebrate and they were pure, physically and morally pure. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So these 144,000, they're of Jewish heritage, according to Revelation 7, verses 4 to 8. Yet they are also clearly believers in Jesus. They are Messianic Jews. Otherwise, they could not be standing with the Lamb, and they would not be following the Lamb, Jesus. And also, they could not be without fault before the throne of God, because it's only by the blood of Jesus that we're cleansed, right? So these are Jews who have been converted, or the Spirit has, like Paul, uh, been converted to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, how are people saved in the Old Testament? How are people saved in the New Testament? How are people saved in the tribulation? How are people saved in the millennial reign? It's all the same, isn't it? It's all the same. It's by grace through a personal faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation. They look forward to the cross, we look back to the cross. But other part from that, it's exactly the same, okay? It's all by grace, through faith, it's not by works, it's a gift, not by anything that we can do. And it says these were redeemed among men being first fruits to God into the lamb. Now, if you go back to Corinthians, Jesus is the first fruits, I think it's Corinthians. Um, He's the first one to rise from the dead. We are the next ones, right? As we get our resurrection bodies, we're next. But Jesus was the first. Well, these one hundred and forty-four thousand are the first lot of fruit, the first converts of the Jews, because God promised in Romans nine to eleven that the nation of Israel would be saved, and the Bible indicates that. One third would come through and be saved. One third of the entire nation. So we're talking about a few million people there. So these 144,000 are the first crop of the fruit, the first crop of Messianic Jews who would come from the nation of Israel, recognizing Jesus as their Messiah. And in their mouth was found no deceit, in verse 5, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So they're not perfect, but they were blameless and they faithfully and accurately share the gospel. The whole gospel, (laughs) and not just the good parts, they even told people they were sinners and needed to repent. Now, how politically incorrect and insensitive, you know, hurting people's feelings like that. (laughs) Sorry. Now, also, like the 144,000, we will also stand without fault before the throne. I like this in Jude 24. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, what does it say? Faultless. Before the presence of his glory with what? Exceeding joy. So when we get there, we will be faultless. Our sinful nature is gone. Our capacity to sin is zero. It's awesome. And why Can we be faultless before the throne of God? It's because we've been washed by the blood of Jesus. And Isaiah 118. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should be as wool, white as wool. So now we move on to the proclamations or the three messages of the three angels. So the first angel is in verses 6 and 7 of Revelation 14. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. So he's preaching the gospel, but he's also announcing judgment. He's saying the hour of his judgment has come. And what's his message? Fear God and give glory to him. This is what the angel is going to tell the whole world. This is what the angel is going to tell the whole world to do. They can do this and give glory to God and worshipping willingly in this life, which will cost you your life. Or you will be compelled to bow down and worship later, but it's too late. Now, we are all going to bow the knee. We're all going to have to submit to God and confess that Jesus is Lord. God is the Lord, okay? Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him, this is Jesus, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God. He is the conquering king. Whether you're his friend or whether you're his foe, you will bow and you will honor him. So, our choice, do we submit to him now and praise him now? Do we bow the knee now willingly? Or do we hold on? Do we resist? And then later, when we're in hell, and then the lake of fire, it's too late. We know we have to confess him's, his authority then, but it's too late. You can't change. So, in verse 6, it also says, To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So this is in addition to the work of the two witnesses in Jerusalem and the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And as I said before, it's the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Matthew twenty-four fourteen that the gospel will be preached to all the world before his second coming. Now, missions. Can we just say, I don't need to talk to that person because God will send an angel? <laughs> no. Is it true that God has used angels in our current day and age? Yes, it is. Okay, There's many testimonies of angels speaking, people in visions and all that kind of stuff where missionaries can't get there, right? But, our primary calling in this life, the Great Commission, as we call it, is in Matthew 28, 18 and, 20, and this should guide us in everything we do and say, right? And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, that's a command, go, therefore. Therefore, why is it therefore? Because all authority has been given to me, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So, basically, not just convert them, but teach them to obey, teach them to mature. And lo, or truly, I am with you always, even to the end of the age.
1: Which age? The church age, in this case, in the context, right? So, this is our mission.
0: We should be a mission oriented church. In our circle of friends, in our families, we are missionaries. It doesn't matter if you're not overseas. Every one of us should be sharing the gospel with anyone who will listen. Now, the second angel, Revelation 14.8, he is announcing the fall or destruction of Babylon. And it says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So we'll cover this in chapter 17, but basically, simply put, it represents
1: mankind in organized rebellion against God. And Walvoord, he says, prophetically.
0: Babylon sometimes refers to a literal city, sometimes to a religious system, sometimes to a political system, all stemming from the evil character of historic Babylon. And you go back to Genesis for that. And now the third angel, verses 9 to 11. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which has poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So if any worships the beast in his image and receives the mark, of his forehead or on his hand. So there's a connection between worshipping the beast and receiving the mark. There's no accident here, there's the angels flying around. People will know that once you take that mark, it's not just becoming a part of this economic system, it's sealing your fate. And we mentioned this before a couple weeks ago, the Roman emperors back in the first few centuries there. They killed, I think it's millions of Christians because every citizen and slave in Rome was forced to annually offer a pinch of incense to an image of the current Caesar and to say or to pledge that Caesar is Lord. Now to most people it was just regarded as an innocent act of civic duty to the ancient pagans or rulers. But the Christians could not say that anyone was Lord except Jesus and so they paid for their loyalty to Jesus with their lives. They would not say Caesar is Lord because they believed, and we believe, Jesus is Lord. The coming Antichrist, or we can call him the, the coming Caesar as well, if you want, he's going to do the same thing. To worship the image is to acknowledge that the Antichrist, and therefore Satan is Lord or God. You can't do it. No believer will ever do this they will choose to die. So, there we have it. No compromise. All right, No compromise. But, here's an application for us. What are some of the things that we are compromising in? Because there's a saying that I think is very true. It is easier to die for the Lord than it is to live for the Lord. (laughs) We can say, I'll be willing to die for Christ. I'll be willing if someone puts a gun to my head and says, if you're a Christian, I'm going to shoot you. I'd probably be able to say I'm a Christian. I wouldn't deny my faith. But if someone says, I want you to go and help that guy who offended you last week, I might go, I'd rather not. <laughs> As I said, it's easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for him. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are to be living sacrifices, yeah? Living sacrifices sacrifices not dead sacrifices
1: problem with the living sacrifice he crawls off the altar right we put ourselves on the altar that place of death we submit to god but then we crawl off
0: we're living sacrifice (laughs) yeah the fire gets too hot all right verse 10 he himself Shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of His indignation. So, if you worship the Antichrist, if you take his mark, you will be forced to drink the wine of the wrath of God. So, this cup of God's wrath, this cup represents God's wrath. A couple of verses in the Old Testament that show this is a repeated theme throughout the Bible is Psalm. 75 verse 8. For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. That means full strength. He pours out the wine in judgment. All the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. That means every last drop. And then Jeremiah twenty-five, fifteen: For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand And cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So the cup of the wine of God's wrath. So now we have an application with Jesus. If we go to Matthew 26, verse 3, it says concerning Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went a little further and fell on his face. Remember, he said to the disciples, Come with me, but stay there and pray. The three he brought three disciples. went off and prayed, and then he said, you wait here, I'm going to go a bit further. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So on the cross, what did Jesus do? He took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it himself. It was poured out on him he willingly took the cup of God's wrath and experienced God's wrath being poured out on him. And he did it willingly. But the enemies of Jesus, the people who take the mark, the people who die without asking Jesus to forgive them of their sins and repenting and trusting in him, they will be forced to drink this cup. And that is the sad fate of all who reject the work of salvation that Jesus accomplished on the cross. So I'm just going to read a couple of verses from one of the songs we sung this morning. It's called Jesus Paid It All. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now,
1: a couple of questions I asked myself, and I thought you might be asking the same questions. Did Jesus pay the sin debt for the whole world, for all people?
0: Because if he did, then why are there so many people who will still have to face God's wrath? So, yes, the answer to that first question is yes, Jesus did pay the sin debt for the whole world. He absorbed all the righteous anger of God, poured out on him in full strength, which was the penalty for all sins committed by all people of all time. Remember that the wages of sin is death, and that death is not just your heart, stop beating, right? When your body dies, this death is spiritual death. It's eternal separation from God. It's being tormented in the lake of fire forever and ever. Now, what did Jesus say on the cross? And the darkness came across the land and basically the sun went out, if you're going to use that poetic language. The sun went out and it was dark. The whole world was dark. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the three hours, I believe God, Jesus experienced the eternal separation and righteous anger of God for every person as he hung on the cross in that period of darkness. But then at the end, he cried out, it is finished the price is paid the work is done the sin debt for all mankind is paid in full the wrath of god completely poured out on jesus does the bible say that well yes 1 john chapter 2 verse 2 i read from the amplified version and he that same jesus himself is the propitiation meaning the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours alone but also for the sins of the whole world. And he himself is the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Jesus is the one who atones for and takes away our sins. And not only for our sins, the believers, but also the sins of the whole world. That means everybody. Now, the origin of the word propitiation is interesting. If you were a heathen, if you were a pagan, like worshipping idols and stuff here, what you would be doing, and this still happens in many cultures today, you would offer something to the gods, some kind of sacrifice. It could be food or drink or meat, whatever. Even a baby, that's what they used to do. So as to turn away the displeasure of the gods, you'd be seeking their favour, okay? And. The Christian idea of propitiation is different. Here, God himself presents himself in
1: Jesus Christ as the sacrifice. It's himself
0: as the sacrifice which will turn away his righteous wrath from us. So the people worshipping the idols and stuff they would offer something to try and avert the wrath of God, to try and please the God. But God did it himself. He became the sacrifice to avert his own wrath. And here's a quote from a guy called Alfred on propitiation. we just read it. The word implies that Christ has, as our sin offering, reconciled God and us by nothing else but by his voluntary death as a sacrifice, has by this averted God's wrath from us. So, what I want you to do is take 30 seconds to a minute and explain to the person next to you what that means. The word implies that Christ has, as our sin offering, reconciled God and us by nothing else, but by his voluntary death as a sacrifice. Has by
1: this averted God's wrath from us. So I'll read that again. It says the word implies, the word
0: propitiation implies that Christ has, as our sin offering, reconciled God and us by nothing else but by his voluntary death as a sacrifice. He's reconciled means to bring together, right? By only one thing. nothing else by one thing and that is his death as a sacrifice has by this averted which means
1: turned away god's wrath from us now here's a simple example to help you understand i'll pretend i'm a little kid right if i do something naughty and i steal the biscuits i should get in trouble I should have to buy more biscuits for mum, right? That would be the fair thing to do. But, instead of me having to buy the biscuits, mum buys the biscuits and replaces them for me.
0: So, my mum took the punishment for my sin. Very simple example.
1: She set the punishment and she paid the punishment. So, the question now I want to present to you,
0: going a bit deeper. It says, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So, Jesus made his propitiation for the whole world, yet the whole world is not saved and in fellowship with God. And I'm going to put this on the board. And it says, atonement does not equal forgiveness. And I want to explain that to you. Just because Jesus has paid for all the sins of all mankind, it doesn't mean that all mankind is saved. Alright? So, I'm going to go back to something, probably the most special day of the Jewish calendar. It's the most special feast. It's called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. You find it in Leviticus 1634. This is really special Because this was one sacrifice for the entire nation that would forgive every sin. The one sacrifice carried out once a year that would forgive every sin. So if you were in the nation of Israel, if you had joined yourself, even a Gentile and joined yourself to the nation of Israel and become a Jew, your sins were forgiven. Yet, if you didn't believe, you weren't saved. Okay? So, forgiveness is something that is received. Atonement is something that is done. Does that make sense? To make possible. is something that's been
1: done, something that's been given, but it needs to be received. That's basically another way of saying it. So, in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the sins of every
0: single person were atoned or paid for symbolically by the blood of a single sacrifice. And this points, of course, to the work of Jesus on the cross when he died for the sins of the world. So the point is that all the sins of the Israelites and those who were joined to them were forgiven, but not all of those people were believers in God. They didn't receive didn't believe in, and didn't receive that forgiveness. So the provision was made, but it had to be received by the individual to be effective. Does that make sense? The provision was made for forgiveness, but it had to be received by the individual to be effective. So the words, but also for the whole world, announce to the world that God has taken care of the sin problem by the propitiation or payment of Jesus Christ for sin. So sin does not need to be a barrier between God and man if man will only receive the propitiation or payment that God has provided in Jesus. So here's a quote from Martin Luther. It says, It is a patent fact or obvious fact that you too are a part of the whole world. Now, I'm saying this because some people don't believe that Jesus paid the sins of the whole world. There are some ministers out there, some teachers, who don't believe that Jesus paid the sins of the whole world. They call it limited atonement. And to finish Martin Luther's quote, he says, It is an obvious fact that you too are a part of the whole world so that your heart cannot deceive itself and think, The Lord died for Peter and Paul, but not for me. You can't use that as an excuse. Jesus did die for you. You do have the opportunity to be saved. And concerning salvation, there's only two groups of people. There's the saved and the unsaved. Now, here's an example that might help us to understand this more, Because I know it's it's a hard thing to grasp, right? Imagine that your son committed a serious crime and was given a $500,000 fine or life in prison. Now, you have compassion for your son, and so you sell all of your possessions. You sell your house, your car, your clothes, everything that you own so that you are left with Nothing. You've given your all to raise his money. You then go down to the court, go into the courtroom, and you place that money in front of the judge and explain to your son what you have done. I've sold everything. I've sacrificed everything so you don't have to go to prison. The money is here to pay your fine. So that's the work of atonement. The sacrifice has been made. Everything has been sold. It's there in front of the judge. All right. The judge then turns to the son and asks, do you accept this gift? <laughs> but your silly son says, no, I don't accept your gift. Go away. I don't want your gift. I want to spend life in prison. You can't force me to be free and you can't stop me from
1: going to prison. <laughs> and that's the attitude of the unbeliever. So if you put yourself in the position of the son. You see that you were provided atonement, you were provided atonement, but you didn't receive the atonement. Or as a parent,
0: you provided atonement for your son, but your atonement was not received. And therefore your son was not forgiven or pardoned. He must go to prison and suffer that same punishment that you had to go through. Basically, you had to sacrifice everything, you had to raise that money. Well, he's got to go and pay that penalty as well. So that's why the penalty is kind of paid twice for some people. Jesus paid it, then they pay it because they didn't accept what
1: he paid. Does that make sense? Okay, so the parent paid the $500,000.
0: The son didn't receive that payment didn't want to accept it from the parent. And so he says, I'm going to pay it myself.
1: And so he spends his life in jail. He's paying it off himself. So in effect, it's been paid twice. As we pointed out before, it's our love of sin
0: that stops us from receiving the gift of pardon that leads to eternal life with God. Someone put it this way. when the people stand before the great white throne, all those unbelievers, they're going to see a pardon note.
1: It'll have the name on it, but it won't have been received by them. It's there, but they didn't want it. And then they have to pay the penalty for their own sin, which will take forever. It's a forever thing. So, what I just want to... Finish with is,
0: Jesus is our atonement. He paid the price, but it must be received. We must accept the gift of forgiveness in him. Accept that he is the payment for our sins. If we don't, then we won't experience the good of it. Just like the son with the prison example there, his parents did all that work, to make it possible for the son to get out of jail, but the son didn't accept it. The parent is still left with no house, no clothes, nothing destitute, right? Just like Jesus gave his all, Jesus still had to die. Whether the person received his gift or not,
1: whether they appreciated it or not, it didn't matter, he still gave it. So Lord, thank you
0: for... What you've done for us, your death on the cross was the propitiation, the payment, the atonement for our sin. And atonement means at one man. Lord, we can now be at one with you and fellowship with you, one with you because of your payment of our sin debt. Lord, the penalty of sin is eternal separation from you. And Jesus on the cross, you experienced eternal separation from god so thank you father for sending your son and we also know that the father was in the son and so this was not just something that only christ experienced but it was a painful torturous experience both the father and the son because the father was in the son reconciling the world to himself that's what the scriptures say so we just thank you Lord, for your work as the Trinity in saving all mankind, and you, God, overall, becoming the payment for our sins. Not making us pay for our sins and the things we've done wrong, but you paid our sins. You suffered. You died. You gave up your life. You became nothing. You became poor so that we could become rich. Lord, help us not to be foolish and not receive that gift. And Lord, if we have received it already, Help us to be exceedingly glad and rejoicing and going, wow, I can't believe how much God loves me because of what he's done for me. What it says in Romans, that God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.